0: Hi listeners, John Andrew Slominski, your host here. Just a note, the Autism Annex podcast has now been with you for two whole years. Thanks so much for listening. This month, we're doing our first ever episode repeat, sharing a favorite episode from last year. My guest in this episode is licensed psychologist, Dr. Matt Lundberg from Oregon Autism Evaluations. We talk autism, mental health, and discuss the connections that matter most in life. I hope you enjoy. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Autism Annex podcast. I'm your host, John Andrew Slominski. At Star Autism Support, we spend much of our time and energy in the world of evidence-based practices, focusing on the ways in which teaching and learning can be improved for students with autism and other developmental disabilities. As we've been considering some of the challenges that the world has presented all of us over the last two years, we've heard from parents, caregivers, teachers, and staff members alike, that mental health has proven to be a serious concern. If you consider the isolation associated with COVID-19, the resulting lack of social opportunities, as well as just the general anxiety about the state of the world, this should be no surprise. In addition, according to some studies, around 75% of people with autism experience some mental health condition, such as depression and anxiety, and they also have an increased risk of mental health challenges when compared to the neurotypical population. To cut to the chase, this seems very important. Education is our wheelhouse, but mental health is not, so we brought in an expert so all of us could learn more. My guest today is Dr. Matt Lundberg. Dr. Lundberg, would you please tell us a bit about yourself and your practice?
1: My name is Dr. Matt Lundberg, licensed psychologist and founder of Oregon Autism Evaluations, LLC, a private practice in the greater Portland area that focuses on the psychological evaluation and treatment of adolescents and adults with autism spectrum disorder. I would say that a lot of the people I'm seeing are either... Individuals who were previously diagnosed and received a diagnosis they don't feel matches their internal experience, or are individuals who felt that they were overlooked for one reason or the other in elementary school, middle school, even college, and now are feeling compelled that this is a question they need to have an answer to.
0: Dr. Lundeberg, walk us through the steps of an autism evaluation, if you would. How does it work, and what could an individual expect from the experience of an autism evaluation?
1: The first major part of an evaluation is the gathering of history. As a neurodevelopmental disorder, autism is something that's present from birth, and so we need to be able to at least find clues of the experience dating back to the early developmental period. It's not to say that all of the symptoms are going to be present at every age. However, there are different milestones where we start to see a lot of experiences and difficulties start to come about. For example, the transition from fifth grade to middle school is a pretty common time for those difficulties really start to emerge because we've changed the rules from, oh, let's go play on the playground and have fun to now all the play is social and we're dating and it's all relational and that's much more difficult than figuring out the rules of tag or dodgeball. So we get a thorough developmental history. You're going to answer a lot of questions about social relationships, how you relate to other people, conflicts that might have arisen in the relationships, as well as difficulties with academics, as well as all the strengths that you have in different areas.
0: As you go through the process of a diagnosis, what's the spectrum of responses that you hear from your patients? I imagine there could be quite a variety of reactions to this experience of learning more about oneself.
1: Well, what's really helpful is in addition to that detailed developmental history, we also use a variety of validated assessment measures that can give them an accurate representation of how they are compared to similarly aged peers. So it can place their strengths and weaknesses in, in perspective. An individual might say, I got terrible attention. I just can't focus. And they feel really bad about that. But then we compare and go, oh, actually, their attention is is age appropriate. It's actually within developmental limits and they're struggling in a way that most of us struggle. So there can be a great sense of relief to see uh, data to show where they're actually falling compared to their own subjective experience, which usually highlights our weaknesses rather than our strengths. We see other people's strengths as more important uh, than our own and we highlight our own weaknesses. So that data can be very helpful. And also I would say the biggest Usefulness of the outcome of an evaluation, whatever the diagnosis may be, is removing that sense of guilt or responsibility for their own personal you know, failures or relationship struggles, seeing that there's a reason for these difficulties. And it's not because you're not good enough. And it's not because you or have something inherently wrong with you. It's because your brain is set up differently with a different strengths and weaknesses profile. And most of the world has a inverse strengths and weaknesses profile. And we're expecting you to play by those rules without any accommodation or even giving you the rule book. So that can really give people just the sense of, oh, this is why I'm so awkward in this situation. This is why I have no idea what someone wants me to say when I answer a question. And that relief just brings about a, a great reduction to symptoms right off the bat.
0: You know, it seems that the frustration level has to be very high for folks if the social rule book, so to speak, is practically kept a secret under lock and key And on top of that, despite many of us maybe wishing for an alternative, the actual book doesn't exist.
1: Well, absolutely. And the rules are expected to be learned implicitly. The rules really start coming out in middle school, and we expect just by that observation of nonverbal communication to understand what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. For example, if I pick my nose, I see someone's nonverbal communication that gives me a grimace, I understand that that's a socially inappropriate behavior, so I don't do that. But individuals with autism don't have that nonverbal communication language. It's almost that they have to learn it as a second language on top of the verbal language explicitly. So all of their peers who are learning these things implicitly are in a way leaving them behind because they don't even know that's where the information is coming from. I've heard so many of my clients, like if someone would just tell me what I'm supposed to say and how to respond, not that they want to, you know, just act as if the, act in a way that other people want them to act, but the desire to have that social connection, the desire to build relationships with other people. You know, there's this big misconception that individuals with autism are antisocial or don't want friends. And that's just not the case for so many. You know, some individuals don't want friends, just like some neurotypical individuals prefer a life of solitude. But for those who do, it's incredibly, you know, disheartening to try and connect with another person and have no idea how you're supposed to meet that goal. And giving someone the explicit, social expectations, what body language means, what are these social rules, they're able then to use it to meet the greater goal of having that interpersonal connection.
0: Dr. Lundeberg, let's talk a little bit about the difference in diagnoses between diagnoses of boys and girls with autism. It's pretty well known as far as I understand it that girls are either misdiagnosed or remain undiagnosed at a far higher rate than boys who may present similarly. Could you speak to this phenomenon a bit?
1: Sure. And so there's a great difference we see in the presentation of autism in boys and girls, specifically as it comes to the concepts of social masking or social camouflaging, the, excuse me, social camouflaging, the intentional application of learned social behaviors to mimic and present in a certain way. And one of the things that causes a lot of school-aged females and even uh, young adult females to not get a really respectful not getting a person to respect their question of having autism is they're actively applying this social camouflaging. And there's there's several theories of why that's happening. One of the theories that is that in general, women are expected to be feel more responsible for the emotions of others. So they're expected to conform their behaviors to lessen, The negative reactions of males, and of course, this is not a positive behavior, but it's a societal expectation that I would say many people are working on undoing with addressing sexism in the world. But it's kind of where we've resulted is women have more of a sense of internalized, socialized responsibility to present in a certain way, and that goes beyond uh, neurotypical individuals into individuals with autism, where there's less often because of the perspective taking and the recognition of the nonverbal communications, there's a less of an understanding for those around them. But the difference between males and females, that trend uh, from what we see in neurotypical individuals translates into those with autism where we still see one worrying about it more than others, than the other and actively trying to convey a certain image. So it really... I hear a lot of, well, they can't have autism, they make eye contact. Did you ask them why they're making eye contact? And many times I hear, well, I don't like it, and I don't understand why, but I was told it's the important thing to do, and I want people to know that I'm listening, so I look them in the eye because that's what they want me to do. That's an intentional application.
0: You've mentioned two very interesting terms in the last few moments, social masking and social camouflaging. Could you unpack this vocabulary for us?
1: Sure. And so there's, uh, sometimes they're used interchangeably, and sometimes they're used as separate terms. And as I would understand them, social masking is more often used to describe the hiding of behaviors that would be seen as autistic. If people didn't want to present in that way, hiding their features of autism, that would be maybe limiting their speech on a interest of high focus or hiding stim behaviors but actively trying to mask over what features of autism they're worried of other people perceiving and then camouflaging would be the active application of what they see as quote-unquote normal behaviors of oh i'm supposed to nod when i'm listening when it's not a natural nonverbal communication it's an intentional directed message to show that they're doing something specific
0: It's probably important to note as well that masking and camouflaging are not social strategies strictly employed by people with autism. It's something we all do.
1: It's called code switching when we talk in a different way based on the setting. And we all do that to some degree that I talk differently to a client than I do to my grandmother, than I do to my best friend, than I might to a romantic partner. And being able to switch between those things helps me meet my goals. So being able to have a business persona, that even I might have more um, masked or camouflaged behaviors in a business persona because that's the professional image I want to represent. That's going to help me meet the goal. But when I don't have to have that mask up and I can be myself, I don't feel the other was inauthentic. I see it as connected to the goal. So having a skill that you can apply when you need it, but then when you're around the people who know you, really care about you, and don't judge you, you can let those things down, and then it becomes more about goal-oriented behavior. And this is the rule, and I want that job, so I'm going to play the game, even though the game's not fair, and I didn't write the rules, but I still want that job, so I'll play the game to get it. And then as they get to know me, and they trust me, and they... Because there's so much miscommunication and perceived disrespect that comes from many of these behaviors for eye contact so simple. We perceive not making eye contact as a sign of disrespect, but if it's physically painful for someone to make it, why do I expect them to make eye contact with me? That's just cruel.
0: We've spoken some about the challenges that girls face when reaching a fruitful autism diagnosis, and I wonder... What about the LGBTQ community? How do their identities shape their diagnoses and vice versa?
1: One of the first things is so often individuals with autism, that becomes what the world wants to be their defining feature. We lead that as saying, this is the most important thing about you, this is the thing we're going to focus on everything else doesn't matter and it can be infantilizing we can view the person so we remove sexuality we remove aspects of you know just because someone has autism they're actually more alike than different in all of these other realms so we can ignore any sexuality and then it makes it even more difficult to possibly come out as gay lesbian or bisexual because Their parents are even hit over the head with the fact that they were having sexual thoughts, but they hit puberty. Of course they were having sexual thoughts. They hit puberty and and they started seeing the gender that they liked and it was giving them feelings they didn't know what to do with, like a teenager. So part of the difficulty is people are more shocked sometimes when that even comes up and their agency isn't respected as much. So you get more questioning, are you really sure? that you're LGB? Are you really sure that you're transgender? Oh, you've just probably picked up on this from, it's it's not respected always in the same way. So that that's one of the areas that it can be a little more difficult. Sometimes it is more difficult for the individual because they report, oh, this is another thing that's separating me. This is another way that I'm different and why can't I just be normal? And so it changes the developmental process of accepting oneself. Because, I mean, you could spend a whole hour trying to define what even is normal. It's a a ridiculous concept to begin with. But that is just another way I'm different from all those I, I see around me. So it can add to that complexity of how do I figure out myself. But in another way, it's also a way to join a very accepting community. And so there, it's not all negative in that because it is an alienated group, an ostracized group, and a rejected group, that common experience can sometimes be a greater connection than the division between autism and not autism, That in a way that they can find a crowd or a group where they feel more alike actually than different.
0: In a nutshell... What are some of the biggest mental health challenges that you see your patients with autism facing on a daily basis?
1: I think one of the biggest challenges I see for my clients with autism, there's really two. There's being forced to conform to an environment that really wasn't set up for them, whether it was academic or work, and then navigating the struggles they have with Interpersonal interactions and the desire to make friends and engage with the world. And so there's a a large section of the individuals I work with, I would say, are not dual diagnosed. They don't have a separate anxiety disorder or depression, but they're actually having, you know, lowercase anxiety, lowercase depression stemming from the features of their autism. And that's really what we're, we're working on. So it becomes a lot of it is psychoeducational of, okay, so if we want to build friendships, what are we doing that's getting in the way of that? And is it something that you're willing to address in the name of the greater goal? Because it goes back to the idea of a little bit of code switching of how do you present yourself in a way that a new person will go, oh, that's a person I'm interested in being friends with. And then understanding that while we might have to present a imaged version of ourselves at the start, that gets your foot in the door, which allows them to take the time to get to know the whole you. And then you get to have that genuine human experience. But if we let some of the you know, disconnect or the awkward experiences or the confusion in social communications get in the way, we don't get the opportunity to build that deeper connection that can come from it. So kind of starting with the goal of what what we're looking for. How is autism getting in the way? What can we do differently to try and reach that goal? Or is that a goal you really want? Is that a job that's really worth the sacrifice that you're having to put in to exist in this environment? We we can get stuck on the idea, oh, it's not fair that I can't exist in this environment. Well, it's, it's right, it's not. And once we're able to let go of the fact that life's not fair, we're actually able to start really getting to the good stuff because we get to enjoy all the things that are working for us rather than lamenting the things that are not. So part of the work is actually just addressing, I would say, secondary symptoms to some of the autism deficits. Specifically, a lot of the social communication ones, but also in some of the rigidity, uh, schedule changes, and also how to advocate for yourself to allow people to meet you in the middle. Asking someone to use concrete language is not you asking them to fully accommodate you. It's asking them to meet you in the middle so you can understand what they're saying because you want to understand what they're saying so you can meet the common goal. So kind of active problem solving of what's not going well in day-to-day as it's being impacted by autism is one area And then there's also the individuals who have a secondary uh, dual diagnosis of kind of their anxiety is above and beyond what we would say is connected to the symptoms of autism. And we can see that's connected to a generalized anxiety disorder, or that's connected to an obsessive compulsive disorder. Those can be misdiagnosed, but they can also co-occur. And same things with ADHD. Before DSM-5, we didn't think We said, okay, we can't diagnose them both at the same time. We're going, no, you can have both. You actually can have, there's a, you know, develop, there is more attention deficits for individuals with autism. It's paying attention is a little harder if we're on a topic that's of non-interest, but you can still even be above and beyond that into a secondary disorder based on attention deficits. So one, we want to make sure we're not attributing everything to the autism diagnosis. So we're not missing what could be a secondary condition that we then also need to address through whatever the treatment modality is for it. So I think one of, and I've said one of the most important things, everything seems to be important to me. But one of the other really important factors is when we're not socially connected, but we yearn to be, it's devastating. It's just heartbreaking and you don't feel like you have any reprieve. And so when you have a condition like autism that creates this barrier to something that's really a fundamental need for a species like us, as I said, if you don't have that need, that's okay, but if you have that need and you can't get it, that's devastating. So being, and it just exacerbates all other mental disorders. It makes everything worse if we're socially isolated and disconnected, but we don't want to be. So there's direct goals where we're like uh, where we're treating exactly what the condition is and then there's this secondary goal of building up a person's social network, building up interpersonal connection and that's even where the therapeutic relationship can start the process as a real dress rehearsal for life where it's like hey there is actually a person who hears what I'm saying and I don't feel like there's a disconnect between everything.
0: My guest today has been Dr. Matt Lundberg, licensed psychologist with Oregon Autism Evaluations in Portland, Oregon. This is a first for us at Star Autism Support, discussing mental health in detail. So many thanks for getting us started on the right foot and for all of your insights today, Matt.
1: Oh, good. You're welcome. Thank you.
0: And thanks, as always, to you, Autism Annex listeners. Whether you are a regular listener to the podcast, or maybe this is your first time tuning in, we are glad to have you with us. As a reminder, you can also always find more content by visiting us at starautismsupport.com and clicking on newsletter. Much like last month, this month's newsletter complements this podcast episode on mental health. Join us there, and be sure to subscribe for all the latest updates. It's worth noting that for many of us, The holidays are just around the corner, and for those with mental health concerns, this can be a particularly stressful time. If you or someone you care about has struggles, be sure to contact your local school counseling office, state and local mental health services, or if necessary, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. All of these resources can offer help to those who need them. The Autism Annex podcast was developed by Star Autism Support. Sheila McGee provides consultation on content and media. I'm John Andrew Slominski, and as always, it's my joy and privilege to serve as your host, engineer, and producer. Keep in mind that we are always interested to hear feedback from you. You can reach us at podcast at star until next time take good care of yourself and one another